Today's message is part three of our First Timothy series, and I entitled today's message, Clinging to Unity. And I want to begin with a concept that will lead us into the fill-in-the-blank in front of you. I want to talk about the Trinity for a moment. Now, the Trinity is a concept that is very central to mainstream Christianity. It is something that is very precious to us that we believe very strongly. No one fully understands it because there is no equal to God here on earth. There is no being like God here on earth. So the words that we use and the phrases that we use to describe the Trinity sound odd. We say there is one God. We must lock that into our minds. We are monotheists. We believe in one God, just like the Jews do. Uh, we believe in one God. However, we believe that that one God is manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all co-equal, all fully God. These are things we must know. We must lock down. Now, the Trinity is all over Scripture, although the word is not used. The concept is everywhere. It is from the very beginning to the very end. It's all over Genesis. It's all over Revelation. Early on in the creation account, it says, as you read the Bible, that the Father initiated creation by speaking a word. The word is logos which we know to be Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word then, in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. It also says that in creation, when the Father spoke and the Son created, that hovering over the waters was who? But the Holy Spirit. Then, when mankind was created... God said something rather unusual. He said, let us make man in our image, plural. That is where you have the Trinity communicating among itself. Does that make sense? Now, the reason why I'm pointing all this out is there's an interesting passage in Ephesians where it says, I kneel before the Father from whom all families on earth derive their name." Here's the point I want to make. Our social institutions that God has created, such as marriage, such as families, are really a projection of what is found in God. The reason why we are social beings, that we have a communication method, is because we're made in the image of God. The reason why there is unity is because it is found in God. Our families communicate a lot about who God is. If that is so, we need to understand one other thing about the Trinity. We say things like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our world, we think of Father being the tall guy, Son being the short guy, right? Because it's, oh, he had a kid, all right, that's where we have to be careful because the son and the father are 100% equal. Would we agree on that? Yet function wise, they do different things. They are different, but absolutely equal. You would not say that because Jesus 
came down here to redeem mankind, that, wow, he's a lot less than his dad. You cannot say that and be theologically accurate. You must say, though his function is different, it does not lower him in any way. Now, when Jesus was here, he said, I'm going away to the Father. The Father is greater than I. He said phrases such as, I will do nothing except that which the Father tells me to do. Wow, it sure sounds like there is a submission of one to the other. Then Jesus leaves. He said, it's better that I leave so that what? The Holy Spirit can come here and be with you. How is that better? Because Jesus walked alongside, the Holy Spirit dwells within, right? All right. Some of you go, I got this stuff. Others of you are going, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. The important thing you must understand is different doesn't mean less than. Why? Because whenever we begin to talk about relational issues within the church, or we talk about relational issues within a marriage, or relational issues within a family, and we use words like submitting, everyone gets tense. When we use words like role and function, everyone gets tense. Why? Because we immediately think less than. Stop doing that. In the Trinity, different, equal. In the family, different, equal. We are going to be handling all sorts of issues today about how a church is supposed to operate and how we all have different roles and functions. Do not be thinking inequality because that is not on the board. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. We all have a role to play in God's kingdom. We all have a role to play in God's kingdom. If that was not so, you wouldn't exist. Everyone has these moments of doubt. Am I valuable to the kingdom? Do I matter here? Do I have any gifts and talents? Let me be practical with you. If you did not, you would not live. There's your answer. Of course you do. You are absolutely necessary because God's not just going to waste no, you are here. Your very presence demands that you have value to the kingdom of God. Of course you do. Every one of us has a role to play. It's different. And if we constantly rebel against the calling God's given us, we violate the very nature of God. For God is a God of order, not disorder. God is a God of order, not chaos. All right, we got all that locked in our back pockets. Let's get into it. First Timothy chapter one, verse 18. First Timothy chapter one, verse 18, page 839 in the Bibles handed to you. First Timothy chapter one, verse 18. I'm just going to read the first uh, couple verses, make everyone super uncomfortable, and then we'll pray. Here we go. By the way, it, no matter how cold it is outside, I end up getting hot up here. And it's usually when I'm preaching on stuff like this. All right, here we go. Timothy, my son, verse 18, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. 
But some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. All right. Awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today that we would have an opportunity to walk through your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us helps that we might understand what is going on in your word. But Lord, ultimately, if you do not convey your will to us, we're not going to be able to do it. If you do not provide us power, Holy Spirit, to live and to make adjustments, then we will never be able to do it. We rely 100% on you. From you, we derive all our power, all our hope. And we ask, Lord, that today you would make us something that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so people are getting handed over to Satan. What's that mean? Why is that? Okay, well, let's dive into it. Timothy, my son, we know that Paul and Timothy are incredibly close. Timothy is Paul, the apostle's protege, his apprentice. At this time of writing, they've been hanging out together for about 15 years. He probably led Timothy to the Lord. He used the phrase very commonly, my son in the faith. So he says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, this letter, all the dialogue we've been having. I give all of this to you in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. What prophecies? We do not know, but Paul refers to a time when the elders, when he was young, laid hands upon him, likely at that moment prophesied over him. What would they have likely said? We are guessing and speculating. It's likely that they would have said something to the degree of God's hand is upon you. He has rescued you, Timothy. And the amazing things that you will do for the kingdom, you will soon find out. You are gifted by God. You will be strong in him. Go out and do the work that the Lord has for you. That's pretty much what we can surmise. Paul said, now I'm giving you all these instructions because you keep wanting to quit. I'm giving you these instructions because when the guys prophesied over you, when they laid their hands on you, you know God was calling you to the ministry. You know he was equipping you. So come on, buddy, we can do this. I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, God's word for your life, you may fight the good fight. What fight is that? It is the advancement of the kingdom breaking into our reality in this world that is largely run by Satan. The breaking through, the storming the gates of hell concept, not allowing the temptations to overcome you, standing firm in your faith, that you may fight the good fight of promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ against opposition. And in doing that, I want you to hold on to the faith and hold on to a good conscience, choosing to do it God's way, not your own way, choosing to follow the Lord at his word not just reason out your own way. However, some have rejected these ideas and concepts and they have shipwrecked their faith. In other words, God sent them afloat in freedom. They decided to do their own thing, not follow the plans of God, and they ran aground. Does that mean they're doomed forever? Well, this is what we're going to talk about. Verse 20, among them... Are, and what did I tell you before? How horrible is it to be named in the Bible for being a jerk, right? Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to, uh, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. All right, what's the only, thing wor- the only thing worse than being named in the Bible is being a jerk? It's being named as a jerk twice 
All right. It's actually in the next letter, too. Let me read it to you. In second, both these guys are mentioned twice. So second Timothy 214, Paul said to Timothy again, keep reminding them of these things, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus. There's that guy again, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. All right, so we kind of get a groove as to what this guy is. This is a bogus leader who's teaching bad doctrine and ruining people's lives. What about Alexander? Well, he's in 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. All right. Key leaders. How do we know they're key leaders? Because they're rebuked publicly. Key leaders leading people astray. Paul said, when I came in last time, I took both those guys out of leadership and I handed them over to Satan. What in the world does that mean? Christianity came out of Judaism, right? Judaism is our heritage. Jesus was Jewish. And so all these guys in the early Christian church, almost all the initial core were Jews, Messianic Jews. Well, they were all raised. Let's say they got saved. Let's say the disciples were in their 20s. Maybe some of them were younger. Maybe some of them were older. But let's say they all get saved. They've been raised their whole lives as good Jewish boys that go to synagogue. In synagogue, there are certain ways you do things. So Christianity adopted early on a lot of Jewish flavor in how things were done. That's why we tend in this church to talk a lot about Jewish culture. One of the things that the synagogues would do or the Jews would do was excommunication. Excommunication went like this. If you did something in the synagogue that was completely contrary to Judaism, you were caught in gross sin or in amazing amounts of rebellion, they would bring you forward out of the synagogue, have you stand up front, rebuke you publicly in front of everyone, and say, everybody see this guy? He blew it. Don't be like that. And everyone hold him accountable. All right, cool, you can go sit down. Now that's awkward, right? Now there are some Christian churches that do the same thing. Anybody ever been around some of those? All right, yeah. Very, it's a very awkward time, really. Now, if they continue to do it, they put them into a 30-day ban. So if you still were doing all those stuff, they'd kick you out of the synagogue for 30 days. For one month, you can't come to synagogue. You're cut off from us. You do not get any support. You do not get any fellowship. And in our culture, they would say, we pretty much shut down your business too. You're out for 30 days. If they continue on after that, they have a permanent ban on their record and they're no longer allowed to come back to synagogue 
ever. Christianity began to adopt certain things, and most scholars believe this is exactly what we're talking about here. However, there's a slightly different flavor to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to a guy who in the Christian church was caught in gross sin that he was publicly holding a marriage where he was involved in his dad's wife. They hooked up and there was an incestuous relationship. They were very public about that. Paul said, I handed that guy over to Satan so that his flesh would be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day that the Lord returns. What did he mean? I think he meant a lot of what's going on right here. What does it mean to hand over to Satan? It means to kick him out of the church and say, you know what? If that's what you want to do, why don't you go walk in the world for a while? You're going to get tore up and then you're going to learn a lesson and then you're going to come back. All right. The point in Christianity is always what? Restoration. You're supposed to come back. The point is you need to go out and figure out what you want to do. You got to go out and get beat up a little while. Now, here's something that makes it very difficult in our modern culture. In our culture today, we have set up a system by which it is very easy for us to leave church. As a matter of fact, for some of us, we think going to church is doing God a favor, right? It's our act of righteousness. What are you doing this weekend? I'm going to church. Why? It's a good thing to do. That is a horrible attitude. No, you're going to church because you need church. I don't need church. All right, here's why we have church hopping. Because really, you can jump around and go to any church that you want because you can go get what you need from them. Let's say they have a very good singles group. You can go there for that, and then you can go to another church because there's an area that wants to serve in the exact area that you want to serve. And then you go over here because that's where your parents go or your children go. That's pretty common today. So it makes church discipline very difficult in this modern age, because if I bust you on anything, you'll leave and there's not a problem with that. You'll just be embraced by the next congregation, right? So that's not how it used to be. In the old day, there was one church for the city. And if you got kicked out of that one, you're in trouble. You got no help. You got no support. You have nothing. Nowadays, we've set up an environment by which most of us don't even think we need church anymore. Why? Because you can get podcasts, you can watch it on TV, you can listen to it on the radio. And you think that's church. It's not. If you can survive in that environment, you've never plugged into church in the first place. If you can skip church for long periods of time, you're doing it wrong. Here's the way it's supposed to be. When you come into church, you're supposed to have friends here a support network here, and people that you connect with here. You actually have to go through the effort of making those friends. Then they're supposed to be the ones that are with you during difficult times. Your small group, the people you serve with. So if at any time you're missing church, you get a hit from it. All right, now, the way it's supposed to be is if that's the case, then the elders of this church... If you are involved in something where you're harming other people and we have to say, listen, you're not coming here right now. You need to go learn a lesson. You're supposed to be out there wandering alone and allowing Satan to beat the living daylights out of you. Why? Because you got no covering. You have no protection. You have no help. 
You have no fellowship. It's supposed to be a corrective measure. And that is indeed what is happening in this culture here. All right, let's move forward. Everybody comfortable now? Good. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. First Timothy chapter two, verse one. I urge you then, he shifts gears, I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you, Timothy, then, first of all, meaning a matter of first importance, as I'm kicking off this letter, there's something we have to talk about, Timothy, that's super, super important to me. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. What's super important? Prayer. What we leave for last He mentions first. Why do we leave it for last? Because we do not believe in the power of prayer. We think God's going to do what he's going to do, so there's no point in praying about it anyway. How do I know that? Because we don't pray very much. He said, of first importance, the church is to be a house of prayer. We have made it a house of worship. We've made it a house of preaching. It is to be a house of prayer. And we are not doing that very well. And then he uses four terms to describe prayer, building one upon another. They're not completely distinct. However, they add nuance. The first one is just the word request, meaning if I ask you for a favor, hey, can you grab me the, the, a, a cup of coffee? That is request. So you can ask God very practical things or that people's needs would be supplied that are very regular. The next word, prayers, is a Greek word that is used only in contact with a god. In the Greek term, they believed in many gods, so they said if you're going to go petition a god, you would use this phrase. Paul grabs that phrase and says, when we talk to God, we're asking him for things that only he can provide. That needs to be made. The third word is what? Intercession. That's a very weird Greek word that means a close communication with God, an intimacy level. That must be done for other people. And lastly, Eucharistia. Eucharistia sure sounds like what? Eucharist. Communion. The body and blood of Christ represented in what? The matzah and the wine or the juice. Understand the word Eucharistia means thanksgiving. What is the purpose of doing communion? To remember and to be thankful. That's the purpose of it. Be thankful for what occurred. Are we doing it with a thankful heart? He said, now we need to be in a constant attitude of gratitude towards God, of saying, God, this is amazing of what you're doing. All right? He said, I need you to be praying all the time for everybody, including who's next? For kings and those in authority. We've addressed this not too long ago, so I don't want to talk too long on this issue, but in this political environment where, what, November 2nd is right around the corner. I hear a lot of complaining, very little prayer. You need to pray for those in political office. You go, well, I don't respect them. Paul is writing and Nero's on the throne. Nero will kill him and Peter. Nero is one of the nastiest emperors that were ever a part of the, uh, the Roman Empire. So, no, you don't have any out. Paul just said, the man who is about to have me beheaded, you must intercede for him, love on him, and pray that things go well for him. Why? Well, first of all, because we pray for enemies. But beyond that, 
he said, so we can live peaceful and quiet lives. Part of the reason our government doesn't seem to support Christianity super well may well be because we're pretty lousy at interceding for them and praying for their spiritual lives because wouldn't it be awesome if they got saved? Wouldn't it be awesome if they began to uphold the word of God? No, we just sit back and go, man, it's a drag. No Christians are running for office. Boy, our nation's going to hell. All right, hold up. Are you interceding for them on a consistent basis? Are you praying for their salvation? Because that's what we're called to do. As a matter of fact, it's all over scripture. I was reading some of the early church fathers and how they prayed for their leaders who all killed them. And their entreaties and prayers for them to have safe, peaceful offices is incredible. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness, respecting man and God, and all holiness, cleanliness. For this is good and pleases God our Savior. What? Who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, I'm not going to get into a debate with you about predestination and free will. All right? That can just got opened right there. But this is one of the dynamic passages like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the same sort of passage that says God wants none to perish but all have eternal life. If you hear God's voice tugging on your heart today, you must respond with yes, Lord. I don't want to get into a theological debate with you. I don't want all the arguments in the church to shut down what God's trying to do in your life. Just respond to God and say yes, because he wants to rescue you. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God, we talked about that, and one mediator, one person running interference, one person reestablishing the broken connection between mankind and God. There is only one that has reconnected those. The one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is not multiple ways to heaven. There is not multiple faiths that are saving. There is one way, right? There is one exit door from a burning building. I don't want to hear anyone complain and say that's awfully limited. Just run out the stinking door. Why is there got to be one exit door? You know what? There's an exit door. Thank the Lord. There's an exit door and start running that direction. Right? Amen? All right. Jesus Christ said, I'm your Savior. Hi, here's my name tag. And I showed up and I would like to lead you to life. How about everybody come with me? There is one mediator. How did he restore that connection between God and man? He did it on the cross. It says in this verse, he gave himself up, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all men, a buying back of a slave and setting them free. We have been bought back by the blood of Jesus and set free that we might live for him. Right? 
the testimony given at its proper time, meaning in history at the perfect time, Jesus Christ came and died for us. And in our lives, he died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, while we were still wicked. He said, I'll die for you. He said, but I'm unlovable. He said, not in my eyes. He said, and for this purpose, for preaching this message, I was proclaimed a preacher, a herald, one that would proclaim and say, this is true. And I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. I am a witness. He says that it's true for me. It's not just true for everybody else. It's also true for me. I can tell you from personal experience, Jesus Christ saves. I was called an apostle. That is a missionary. Someone sent out on behalf of God and a teacher. I instruct people in the details of the true faith to the Gentiles. I am an ambassador to those that didn't believe that God was for them. All right. That's his concept. He said, therefore, now that we've established what we're doing, Timothy, I need to give you some instructions so that the church runs smooth. I know a little bit about what is happening there in Ephesus, he says. And I want to tell you there's some corrections that need to be made. We're going to start with the guys. Because the word here says, I want men, and it means men as opposed to women. So this is a particularly male issue going on in Ephesus at the time. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. He said, the guys in your church have a couple problems. They have anger problems and they have arguing problems. We're going to address those immediately. He said, when I want men everywhere to lift up hands in prayer. All right. And you're going to go, I don't understand what that means. Remember Christianity borrowed a lot from the Jews. The Jews had multiple postures of prayer. Their most common posture of corporate prayer was to stand up arms outstretched, palms upward. That is how you pray. So you're lifting up your hands. You can lift it like this. You can lift it like this. He said, as you lift up holy hands, I want you, meaning in prayer, I need your heart right, or it's going to block your prayers. You, I don't want you sitting there trying to say, oh God, I'm all into you when you're being a jerk to everyone else. That doesn't fly. Gentlemen, here's your main problems, he said. Anger. And by the way, guys, this applies to us. I don't know what our problem is, but men wrestle in the areas of anger. Constantly. Mostly because we're terrible at communicating. We don't know how to talk it out. We don't know how to share it. We don't know how to get it out of our chest. We usually run back in our cave, hold it, and then store it. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And we walk around bitter and angry all the time. If that is the situation, it's blocking your prayers. You cannot hate the person next to you and think everything's cool with God. In the same way, you cannot spend all your time arguing with each other, disputing. The word can mean doubt or dispute. It's more likely dispute. You cannot sit there and fight with each other and think that God's just going to let that go. No, he's not. It will hinder your prayer life. Ladies, he said, I want to address the women now. I want women to dress, mo- dress modestly with decency and propriety. 
Let's pause. He is not specifically talking about revealing clothes in this passage. He talks about that elsewhere. He's not talking about a sexual issue. He's talking about simplicity versus uh, really, really expensive, gaudy, I'm trying to show off my bling kind of stuff. Right? Now he says this. I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Why? Is God against women looking nice? No, he is not. And some of us, like me, <laughs> we need a little help. All right? So, so I need to look a certain way to maybe help me look a little bit better. Now, Ladies, you're not supposed to wear... What's the braided hair thing about? Oh, God's against braids. No, God's not against braids. All right. The way that it worked in that culture at that time, and I've shared this with you before, but the women would do their hair up really tall. All right? So we're going not only beehive, we're kind of going, you know, I don't know, kid and play. I don't know what we're doing. We're up here. But anyway, (laughs) like total 80s reference. All right, here we go. Women would lace through their hair all of their jewelry. So you'd walk around and you have pearls and all your rings and jewelry sticking out of your head. And that way, when you walk into a group, everyone would go, dang, you're super wealthy. Because your big old head is walking around and everyone's going, I didn't, I can't even wear all that jewelry. So you got jewelry on, you got jewelry in your head, you got jewelry everywhere because you're trying to show a status. I'm wealthier than you. All right. A lot of the guys, let me bring in why this matters. Guys, when you walk into a room, this is how guys look at you. They usually glance over to go, are you going to kill me or do I know you? Either way, I don't care. All right, and then they move on. When a woman walks into a room, every woman periodically and slyly looks over, looks you up and down, and moves on about their conversation. Largely about you. Guys, you have no idea how this works. They are super subtle, okay? All the women know it. The guys don't know it. Every woman that walks into a room is completely examined. And that is a lot of pressure. If we have social economic differences where some have wealth and some do not, instantly all the ladies who would love to dress a certain way but cannot afford it are instantly humiliated. They cannot focus on anything else in the service. They cannot focus on any other conversation because they feel inadequate. That disrupts worship. So he busts them and said, why are you making all the other women in the church feel miserable just so you can feel good about yourself? Stop doing that. Don't hurt other people. They're supposed to be able to focus on Jesus, not on your outfit. Right? He said, if you want to look awesome, here's what I need you to do. He said, uh, but with dress yourself with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Listen, in Christian circles where there are somewhat mature Christian women, I'll tell you how it usually goes. They'll talk about different outfits and stuff like that. But all of a sudden, they'll lock into a conversation about a woman who's particularly encouraging. Or they'll lock into a conversation about a woman who really blessed them or a woman who really prays for them. And all of a sudden, the level of their conversation skyrockets. They have so much respect for other women who are on their side. It stops the competition issue 
And now they look and they say, that woman is such a blessing to me. And everyone goes, ooh, if you want to look good, then start focusing on doing what God has asked you to do and serve the women around you because your stock goes up immediately. All right, we got that one? Good. Let's go into the one that causes a problem. <laughs> Verse 11, we're going to read 11 through 15 all together. Speaking of women, he goes on and he says, a woman should learn, meaning in the church, should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What? What are we talking about? All right, let's make it worse. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. You're going to go back to the left in your Bibles. Eight twelve in the Bible's handed to you. Thanks, Mike. Eight twelve. First Corinthians eleven three. Here we go. This is Paul also talking. Remember, I told you there's two really really rough places to minister. One was in Ephesus where he's writing to Timothy. The other is in Corinth where he's writing this letter. They were just tough places to minister. He said this, speaking on the same issue. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Are you starting to see the Trinity concept? We're talking about function, not inequality. So we have the head of Christ is God. Doesn't make Jesus Christ any less God. But notice this. And every woman, oops, every man, verse four, who prays or prophesies with his head covered Dishonors his head. All right, we got wordplay going on. We got head and head. When we're talking about the noggin, right? What you do with covering your head. And then you dishonor the person who's the head of you. Got it? Wordplay. So if a man covers his head, he dishonors who? Christ, because it just said Christ is his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies, lock that one in your back pocket. We'll talk about that in a moment. Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors who? The husband. Her head. Okay? It says she should have, uh, oh, it is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. What? Okay, pause. What are we talking about? Okay, hair's a big deal in this culture. Are we all tracking on that one? First we had the big huge beehive hair. Now we have like shaving hair, uncovering our hair. What's going on? All right, hair, just as much. I want you to think Middle East very quickly and begin to think about coverings. The veil coverings that these women would wear, and a lot was taken from Judaism moving forward, the head coverings that they were to wear was to cloak their beauty. 
Why? So as not to be a draw of attention. Why? In that culture, we have um, uh, the issue of hair is that a woman would keep her hair bound up. The only person that would ever see her hair down or unkept was her husband in the bedroom. So for a woman to take her hair out in public was to say that she is open and willing to have a bedroom connection. Are we all clear on that? Because no one was supposed to see that. So for women to undo their hair, that's why it was such a dramatic thing for that woman to wipe Jesus's feet with her hair. The only way you can do that is to take it out. Well, that's not supposed to happen. The only women that had their hair down were prostitutes. All right. So when all of a sudden we all show up in church and all a bunch of women come in and they have their hair down and it's uncovered, the guys are instantly like, what's up? And you're like, well, I'm just here for church. I see. I'm having a hard time focusing. When a woman was to be shamed publicly, her head was shaved. He said, that's an obvious dishonor. All right. If you're going to dishonor your husband, you might as well just shave your head and dishonor your whole family. Got that? Why? Because the other women that would have their head at least uncovered in society may well be the single women that were looking for a husband. So for a woman to uncover her head in, in the church situation was basically like taking off your wedding ring and saying you were back on the market. That's dishonoring to your husband. You wouldn't want to do that. Are we all tracking on this? All right, let's keep moving. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head, meaning that she's attached to someone. And you're like, because of the angels, what do they care? Well, you have two choices. Either it means the angels are looking down and observing what goes on in the church service, ready to worship God and say, look at your kids. They're being obedient. Yay. And then they see you dishonoring everybody else and they go, no, that's not yay. That's bad. Or it goes back to the story that back in Noah's day, fallen angels came down and had sex with women. And they were lured by finding them beautiful. And so it's even distracting to the angels. That's creepy. So I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Verse 11. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as women came from man, so also man is born of woman. The great equalizer. But everything comes from God. Go to chapter 14, verse 26. You'll understand that if uh, every president has a mom. All right, there you go. First Corinthians 14, 26. They say the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Yeah. All right. First Corinthians 14, 26. What shall we say, brothers? 
When you come together, meaning as a church, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. For the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. The only other passage that really would apply immediately to this outside of the marriage passages is Titus. Titus says, instruct the older women to live rightly, that they may train the younger women to live rightly. That's where you get this concept of women teaching women and children. Okay. Now. What's happening? Let's go back to our passage in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. All right, let me give you cultural background. In the Jewish synagogue, where they came from, women were not allowed to sit with men. Women were cordoned off in a whole separate area. Uh, a couple years ago, in a world religions class, I went to a mosque. I went to an Islam worship service. There's a wall, and most of the women were on the other side of the wall. If women were allowed in and they came in later, they stood against the back wall. The men all filled the carpets up front, so the men were not looking at women. They were focused directly towards where they were worshiping. This is the culture. In the Jewish culture, the women didn't even really train women. The women didn't really train children. Men did. The old Orthodox way that the Jews would work is that the men were the only ones instructed. Women were not permitted to learn anything about the law. They were not permitted to have any instruction. They were not permitted to have any time to learn about God except through their husbands or their fathers. So when it came for them to come into synagogue, they were not able to jump in on discussion because they didn't have anything to say. In the Greek and Roman culture that this was written in, once a woman was married in Greek society, she was supposed to stay at home and mind her own business. She was not to go out in public, certainly not alone. She was not allowed to talk to anybody, but she was sequestered most of her life. She was not allowed to be educated unless she had the funds to have private education. This is the background that this is written in. What Christianity did was all of a sudden mix everybody together. That's going to create a massive stir. All of a sudden you have women coming in. 
They're coming from a bunch of different avenues because even in the Roman culture of Ephesus, things became tumultuous because in reaction to that sequestering of women came a massive cult called Artemis. Artemis was uh, a great goddess in their world that was female dominant. As a matter of fact, there's this massive cult, the, the temple to these Greek goddesses was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was right in Ephesus. It was an enormous, with thousands of female prostitutes that ran all throughout the city. And it was super matriarchal. So you had massive women's lib, massive and immorality, and then you have massive push the women down, and they were colliding all in one city. Now, all of a sudden, you have Christianity, and the women are coming in, and they're taking down their hair, and they're doing different stuff, and everything's in chaos. And all the people are going, I don't know what we're doing. Paul said, here's what we're going to do. You're not talking. You're going to learn here. You're going to do this. All right. What do we do with all this? One thing that I must remind you of in our final discussion is that equality is assumed and expected. Why? The Bible is very clear on it. How do we know that? It says, Galatians 3.26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you are baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourself with Christ. We all look like Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And it goes on and on and talking about how we are in the church to submit one to another. Okay? Equality is absolutely assumed. The only debate on the table is what is the role and function of women and the role and function of men. So, if you're taking notes, you better get ready to write really fast. Reasons, because there is a big debate. Reasons for women's role of saying that it is equal but different than men are these. Number one, Adam was created first with directives and Eve was brought in as a helper to him. They have different function to fulfill God's calling to the world. That was prior to any sin or any fall. Therefore, it's a universal concept and not affected by the cross. Number two, the fall cursed Eve with a lesser role that said that she would now desire her husband and he would rule over her like a tyrant. And so part of the war of the sexes is caused by the curse. Number three, in the Old Testament, women weren't priests or Levites. Number four, in the Old Testament, women who were prophetesses were either temporary or the exception rather than the rule. Number five, in the New Testament, there were no women in the 12 apostles nor considered in replacement for Judas, nor for the seven table servers of which Stephen was a part of. Number six, in the New Testament, all qualifications for elders in the church are male-focused. Number seven, in the household, the man is the head of the wife, and that household concept transfer, transfers to the church family as well. Number eight, in the New Testament, women could prophesy at times, but they were restricted from teaching, and having authority. Number nine, 
Paul consistently speaks to the differences and roles of men and women. And number 10, the passages on the priesthood of all believers is speaking to the church in general and men and women have different functions in that calling. Got it? The argument on the other side. That women's role is equal and the same as men. Number one, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, both, and they were given the same demands to manage the world. Number two, the redemption by Christ did away with portions of the curse, making all believers equal in God's eyes. And the priesthood of all believers means exactly that. They're all priests. Number three, Jesus had female disciples, not apostles, disciples, that women funded his ministry and even Mary of Bethany sat at the Lord's feet like a disciple, not sequestered apart learning from a rabbi. Number four, Jesus spoke freely to women in public, like the woman at the well, and many times ignored the social gender norms of his time. He spoke to them as equals and with respect. Number five, Jesus as Messiah was proclaimed primarily by women first and foremost on earth. Number six, women were at the cross and at the resurrection. Women watched him last and saw him first. Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrection and told to proclaim to men, even though women in Jewish law weren't allowed to be witnesses. Number seven, men and women were gifted at Pentecost to prophesy and speak in tongues by the Holy Spirit. And Paul gives directives for when women prophesy in the church ongoing. There should be there should not be any distinction of preaching and prophecy since both are proclaiming the word of God. And Peter even refers to Joel's prophecy that the sons and daughters will prophesy in the last days. Number eight, women led in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deborah was a judge. Miriam, the sister of Moses, ruled Israel. Huldah, the female prophetess. And in the New Testament, Priscilla, discipled Apollos, was called a co-worker of Paul. Phoebe was a deacon in Romans 16.1. And two other female deacons are mentioned in history as being persecuted by Pliny the Younger. Lydia was the first convert in Europe, and she was a house church leader. Philip's daughters were prophetesses. Euodia and Syntyche were called co-workers in the faith. Junia was called outstanding among the apostles, and Chloe and Nympha were house church leaders. Finally, number number nine, Paul's instructions to women adjust based on his context and situation in each city. For example, he'll highlight that Priscilla taught Apollos and then say, I don't permit a woman to teach. What do we do? Everybody clear that it's a little bit complicated. So which one's right? I close with this challenge. If you believe that women's roles are not only equal, but same, then you need to answer what Paul was talking about in this passage and the passages we just read. What was he talking about? You got four choices. Ready? Number one, the proto-Gnostic heresy. What? In Paul's day in Ephesus, Gnosticism was rising up. It was a bogus belief. And it actually taught that Eve was the creator of all mankind and the first human being. It is possible that when Paul said woman is not to have authority, the authority is the same word as origin. And it was challenging that faith and saying, no, Adam was created first. He mentions it over and over. You go, why? They knew that. Not the new view. 
It also said that women were dominant and primary and that women could actually lose their salvation if they had children. Thus, the comment, women will be saved even through childbearing. It also it refers to all the other parts that Paul was talking about, about old wives' tales, endless genealogies. These were all referring to Gnosticism that was developing at the time. And in that, Paul was directly addressing the heretical view and saying, no, we're not switching everything up because of this bogus thought. Number two, culture of Ephesus. Just as we don't use the head coverings today, so too many say this is a cultural thing. The cult of Artemis was massive and it led to a female dominated concept which took hold in the church and was disrupting the services. So Paul was shutting it down. Number three, educational expectations because women weren't allowed to be educated they weren't allowed to be in dialogue, but where they're educated, they're allowed to talk. Finally, working with culture for ministry. Just as Paul had Timothy circumcised when he didn't need him to for more effective ministry, so too does Paul work with what he had. Jews and Greeks kept women down significantly, and Christianity was accelerating their value and worth. Instead of getting them a reputation in society as loose, wild women, Paul worked with his context for max efficiency in ministry. What do you think? Here's the important part of all of this. Wherever you stand on this issue... You need to be biblically grounded on why. And secondly, you must not allow any role or function that God has given you to disrupt unity. We all have a part to play. And if we allow what God calls and whispers to us and we always long for something else. Well, I want to be a preacher. Well, I want to be this. I want to be an evangelist. I want to, and we allow it to disrupt we are destroying the unity that the Holy Spirit brings. Do never, never allow Satan to try to tell you that we are not equals in this room. We are. Whether or not God wants us to wash dishes or vacuum the floor is a discussion to have. But please don't ever say one is greater than the other. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. I just pray, Lord, that you would lead us into all truth. That, Father, that we would forget man's opinion and we would hear from you. May your word speak to us richly. Change us. And may we follow your word clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.